not know Kevin Vela, you don't have a startup in Dallas, right? <laughs> we have the honor of uh, uh, presenting here today uh, on the topic of term sheet, the most important topic if you are in your venture to go out and raise money. Um, you'll be surprised how many entrepreneurs we meet that do not understand some of the basic concepts of term sheet. Um, take your time today, ask the right questions. Uh, we can go over the equity term sheet as well as the convertible notes as well. And then most of that is open conversation. Last time we did whiteboarding as well. Kevin drew some really good examples as well. Kevin, do you mind if you record this? Not at all. Right? Put it on YouTube. That'd be great. Do you have a social channel as well? Your own? Yeah, you can share it with us. Casey's, she runs sponsorships for our office. Perfect. Excellent. Oh, all right. Well, it's all yours. All right. Thanks, guys. Yes. Okay. Uh, welcome, everybody. Very nice to see you, meet you. I'm very fortunate to have a couple clients in the room. Uh, always have a good time coming up here. So today's conversation or the topic we want to talk about is term sheets, what they mean, what you do with them. Let me start with some broad concepts on term sheets, and then I'll take individual questions from you guys. As you go out and you start raising money, I think there's pretty typically three or four rounds that everyone's going to go through. The first round is what I like to call the FF&F, friends, family, and founders. And most likely you guys have already gone through this round. This is money that's coming to you from your friends, your family, and then that you've contributed yourself, hence the founders part of it. Pretty typically around Dallas or in the North Texas market, investors expect you to be able to raise about $100,000 on your own through this FF&F part, through this FF&F stage, friends, family, founders. And that could be early stage investments from your friends and family, that could be cash that you're contributing yourself, that could be grants, that could be you know, entry into accelerator programs. But if you haven't been able to go out and raise at least fifty, if not $100,000 on your own, then you're going to have a hard time convincing investors that there's people who are buying into your company. Now, once you get past friends, family, and founders, pretty typically the next round is going to be usually an angel round. And a lot of times these angel rounds are also known as a seed round. You don't have to have friends, family, founders, then seed, then series A. It could, there could be angel rounds or smaller bridge rounds in between. But pretty typically you're going to have a, uh, an angel or a seed round will be your follow-on to your friends, family, and founders round. A lot of times there's coming right after an accelerator, maybe while you're in the accelerator. Usually at a seed round or an angel round level, you're close to revenue, you're starting to hit revenue. I think the expectation from investors is that you can get to revenue, you can get your MVP built out before you get to, uh, before you have to go raise significant capital. As a result of that, I always encourage my clients to try and take as little capital as possible to get you to MVP or to get you to revenue so that the valuation is appropriately adjusted. Now, when you talk about terms in your early stage, oh, and then after your seed rounds, you're going to have your Series A and your Series B, hopefully, and hopefully there's an exit, and there'll be bridge rounds in between all of those things. I always, uh, you know, I always encourage my clients to try and take as little money as possible before when you're, when you're building the company out because the value is just not there. It's a hard time, you know, a lot of people come in and say, well, I want my first round, I want to raise a million dollars. If you want to raise a million dollars, what's the real value of your company? I mean, can we really justify a four or five million dollar valuation? Typically, you want to shoot for giving up 15% per round. It's usually closer to 20, maybe 25%, depending on the round. But if you can shoot for giving up 15 to 20% per round, that's going to allow for the proper dilution to go down to where you're still going to own a material part of the company when you get through your Series A or your Series B round. Most early stage rounds, you know, larger angel rounds or seed rounds, are based on Series C templates. You can go to seriesc.com and you can see standard term sheets in there. Our term sheets look similar to these with some adjustments for things that we like to do or what I see in the North Texas market. Once you get past the seed level and you get to your A level, most A rounds are based on NVCA documents. NVCA stands for National, National Venture Capital Association. And if you go to NVCA.org, you can see their standard term sheets. And these are promulgated by huge law firms. They have tons of comments. Honestly, you would get lost or you could get lost in them if you don't have specific knowledge of this stuff. But there's enough in there to go in and get a good idea. Uh, SeriesC.com also has all these documents. And I think... The benefit to all of us is that these documents are readily available. It makes it easier for startup attorneys or even attorneys who aren't startups, who aren't startup focused to go and review these documents. 
I think it lowers deal costs, it lowers the legal, the transactional costs of the deal. The flip side of it is every once in a while I see founders who are trying to get through these things without legal help and you can really make some mistakes doing that. So I would encourage you if you're going through a funding round to get out and find an attorney, preferably one who's, who's got experience with startups. Because just a corporate or a transactional attorney, while they might understand the documents, isn't going to be aware of what market terms are, or isn't going to be aware of the nuances in some of those term sheets or in some of those docs that could you know, adversely affect you guys. And when I'm advocating on the side of the, of the client, of the, of the company, to give you guys an idea, over the, last, uh, over the last three years, we just audited, we facilitated, my firm's facilitated about 150 transactions. Of those 150 transactions, about 90 are what we're calling a seed round, between 100 and 750,000. About 30 of those are smaller, friends, family, founder rounds, and then about 20, 25 of those are larger A and B rounds. Typically, we represent companies. About 80% of the deals we do is representing companies, but about 20% of them are representing investors or investment groups. We're starting to invest more and more angel groups, VCs, high net worth individuals, family offices, things like that. So we do get to see it, my firm, we do get to see things from both sides. So I want to focus on today, because we could talk for hours about all of these things, but what I really want to focus on our series seed rounds. What I expect you guys will see once you graduate from this accelerator and you go out and you're raising a couple hundred thousand dollars. Like I said, we just did a deal audit. I'm going to publish these results in the next week or so, and you can just follow us on Twitter, or you can just go to the website, baylakello.com. You can see these things. But we learned some interesting things from doing this deal audit, this series seed deal audit. The average investment raised was about $500,000. Realize these are not initial rounds for most of these companies. This is usually their second, maybe a third round. But the average raise in a Series C was about $500,000. The average valuation is about three to three and a half million dollars, regardless of whether we're doing debt or equity. Um, the, and then we have statistics there if you're equity or if you're debt, we have statistics on both sides and kind of what the standard terms were. So let's talk briefly about debt versus equity. Debt is just like it sounds, it's you're taking on a loan. But in the context of startups, it's usually, it's almost always convertible debt. Convertible debt means that at some point in time, the notes, the convertible notes, will convert into equity at a predetermined cap or at a predetermined price. And the price is typically some discount off the next round capped at a certain valuation. So what we usually see is if you have an investor and he says, I want to invest $250,000 into your company, or typically you're going to have five investors who invest $50,000 and put $250,000 into your company. There might be some disparity as to what the valuation of the company is. Obviously, you guys want the valuation to be as high as possible. You say, well, we think we're worth $10 million. Realistically, you might not have the revenues to support that. You might not yet have the market penetration or the customers to support that. The investor might say, you're worth $500,000. So how do we figure out what that valuation really is? One of the ways around that is your convertible notes instead. In a convertible note, you say, look, let's just push off the valuation question for now. And let's just say, you're going to lend me $250,000. We'll let you accrue interest on that over time, and then we'll convert you into equity. When we get to the next round, a lot of times called a price round, when we get to that price round, we're dealing with a VC, or we're more mature, we're a year, year and a half down the road, it'll be easier for us to set a valuation, so we'll convert you into equity at that future valuation. But the convertible note holders, they want a discount. They don't want to convert into equity at what your valuation is a year and a half from now. It's not fair to them. So they're going to lend you the money, they're going to earn interest on it, and they'll convert at the lesser of a discount to the next round, it's pretty typically 20 or 25%, or a cap. And what we've seen is usually about $3.5 million in these rounds. So if your investors invest $250,000 today at a 10% interest, in a year their $250,000 will have grown to $275,000. If, if they have a $3 million cap and you're with a 25% discount and your Series A valuation is at... $5 million, well, they would convert at the lesser of 25% off of $5 million, which would be $3.75 million, or the cap of $3 million. So their $275,000 would convert into equity at $3 million, that's the lesser of the 25% discount or the cap. And then they'll get the same type of class of shares or class of units that you're doing at that Series A. So that's simply, that's convertible debt. And if you've got one of these boards that can yeah, yeah, off, yeah. I'll put this stuff up there. Uh, is it okay? Yeah, go for it. And then the other thing, yeah, go ahead. The, uh, the, the debt is accruing interest, right? So it's not actually their term. It would be 275000 an example, I guess. Typically, interest rates will lower, usually 6 to 7%. Just use 10% for, for ease. Uh, one, one question here. So that 
goes towards the conversion, basically. I mean, they can't ask for the interest in cash, basically, right? They can. They can. They, they usually don't. And our notes are drafted to say that you get everything, the principal plus the interest, the crude interest converts into the next round. So we don't typically allow the investors to do that because you don't want to be pulling money out of a financing round to pay back investors. Your next round investors don't want that, right? You, they want all the money going into the company. So again, in the example that we use, if this is a convertible note, convertible note, convertible debt, they mean the same thing. Convertible note, let's just say it's for $250,000 at 10% interest. That interest is high, but I'm doing that just for examples, with a $3 million cap and a 25% discount to Series A. The language actually usually says 25% discount to a qualified financing, and then you'll define qualified financing in the docs, but it's pretty typically what you would, what you would see at a Series A level. So in this scenario, scenario after one year, we're going to get $275,000 in principal plus interest, and then if you're raising money at a $5 million Series A, the investors are going to take the lesser of the $3 million cap or the 25% discount. So a 25% discount to $5 million would be $375, $3.75 million. So in this scenario, they get a $3 million cap. If you were raising at a $4 million, it wouldn't matter because 25% off of that is going to be $3 million. It hits the cap. If you're raising at a $3 million valuation, then they're going to take their 25% discount, which would be $2.25 million. Does that make sense to everybody? Everybody's clear on this? So it's basically either or. So either it's a 3 million cap. It's the lesser of. Lesser. lesser. Always going to be the lesser of. So in the first case, basically the 250K is converting at 3 million. 275. 275. It's converting at 3 million. So in either case, it's 275. It's going to be principal plus accrued interest. Now, if we, have, if we get the convertible note today and we do a Series A tomorrow, then there's no accrued interest or a nominal accrued interest. Yes. So at the three million dollar, take the four million dollar valuation. So they're both equal. Um, what what is the value of that two hundred fifty thousand dollar investment after? It's what, what's two seventy five divided by three? Um, two seventy five divided by three. It's a little over ten percent, right? Ten eleven percent. So I have ten eleven percent equity of the company. And you have to plan for this because if you're going out and you're selling another 10% equity in the Series A round, these guys are converting in, so you're going to have a 20% dilution effect at that point in time. Guys, dilution is not bad. There's a lot of people out there who say, oh, you don't want to be diluted. Don't be diluted. Dilution is not bad when it's managed appropriately. In fact, it's supposed to be good. You need it. The, uh, the, you, know, you would rather own 10% of a company worth $100 million than 50% of a company worth $10 million all the time. So dilution should be managed appropriately. It's just part of part of startups. Yes. The convertible note does present an option to the holder. They can choose not to convert, right? So it depends. Uh, the standard convertible notes have a qualified financing. It's automatic conversion from qualified financing. But that can be negotiated by investors. I would be leery of an investor who wants to get paid out in cash. I, I really would. In later stage rounds, so I manage a small fund, a small venture fund, and later stage rounds where we do distressed deals and we're doing coming convertible, we might say we have the option. So if you do a large Series A or B round, we just want to get paid out down the road. That's usually later stage. Early stage, it shouldn't be optional. Now realize this assumes we, we get to a qualified financing. There's two other things that can happen before you get to a qualified financing. One is you can hit maturity. Typically, you know it's got a two-year maturity note. So let's just say you get two years, you didn't raise any more money. What happens then? If you haven't raised any more money in two years, one of two things is happening. The company's skyrocketing, and you're doing great, and you don't need any more money, which kudos to you. But most likely, you're not making it, and there's something wrong. And if you're not making it, you're probably not going to have the cash to be able to pay them back at maturity. So what we do in our docs is we set a maturity cap usually equal to half of the conversion cap. So we say, look, if we can't raise any more money in two years, then we're going to convert you at $1.5 million. Because that's bad on us. Right? If we took your $250,000, we weren't able to do what we wanted to do, what we said we were going to do. Because if you can do that, you'll be able to raise more money at a higher valuation. Then we're going to convert you at $1.5 million, and you're going to get a bigger chunk of equity. 
Now, on the flip side, if your company just does so well, if this $250,000 was the rocket fuel that you needed to go and be the company that you want to be, and you never have to raise money again, then we don't want them to come in and, and convert at $1.5 million. So in that case, what you would do is you would say, hey, I'm going to prepay you. I have the money. We're doing so well. I'm going to pay you back. And they would say, okay, fine, pay me back. Or, okay, convert me at the $3 million. That's the way our docs say. So if we are doing so well that we want to prepay you, then you will have the option, you the investor will have the option to take your money back or to go and convert at that $3 million. Yes. Oh, I was going to ask, <clears throat> whose choice is it? Like, if I say that, hey, I want to, you know, I want to give you this money, can they say? It, it's negotiated. Typically, it's the investor's choice. Okay. To say, okay, take the money or I'll go ahead and convert at our original agreement. If you're doing good, they're typically not going to take the money, right? Excuse me? If you're doing good. If you're doing good, they're, they're, they're not because they want to participate yeah. in the upside. They'd rather take the ownership interest and hope that you have it for $100 million. What else? I, I think one thing is safe to assume that in convertible mm -hmm. notes, although it's a note, you are not getting your money back. It's either being converted back into an equity or, yeah, most likely There is, is very low expectation from the investor that this is an actual loan. That said, there are some very active angel groups who use convertible notes but structure them in a way that they're going to make sure they get paid. Montgomery Kasha being one of them. Those guys are very, very active, but they do this complicated debt plus warrant structure to make sure that they're going to get their cash back. So they're basically doing high-yield debt. And I just say Montgomery Costco's are very active investors, and some of you guys might end up getting in front of them. But pretty typically, this is a bridge to equity. Now, something similar to convertible notes, which we've seen a lot of, are the, uh, oh my gosh, the, the, the uh, safe. The, what, safe notes, thank you very much. <coughs> safe notes, which is an uh, uh, alternative to future equity. It's a simple agreement for future equity. Thank you. Safe notes. You see these a lot on the West Coast. I don't like them, but <laughs> safe. Simple agreement for future equity. These work on the West Coast a lot when you have very high-profile founders who are leaving to go do their next thing and they want to get some equity in without going through a lot of legal costs. These safe notes are promulgated saying, look, we still have the same issue. We don't know what the valuation is. So let's not, uh, let's not argue that. But let's just agree that you're going to give me some money today. I'm going to give you a chunk of equity later. We'll figure, out, we'll figure it out down the road. Simple agreement for future equity. These are very company-friendly. I don't think they're very investor-friendly. And I don't think we have investors sophisticated enough in Dallas and North Texas yet to use these. I've seen these three times where I've had companies that raise money using these. It was all on the West Coast. Uh, two of them were on the West Coast. One of them was an investor who was investing into that company. I told them I didn't like it, but the, the company we were investing into, the guys were former PayPal guys or something like that. And so they could just go, they can demand certain things in the marketplace. I have had some founders bring these to me and say, hey, I want to do this. And every time we try and do this in Dallas, the investors just say no. So you might see this, these safe notes. I'm just not, not crazy about it. What about using them for like co-founders for divesting their equity? Co-founder co equity should always be vested by a restricted stock purchase agreement or a restricted unit purchase agreement. If you're an LLC, it'd be a restricted unit purchase agreement or a RUPA. If you're a corporation, it would be a restricted stock purchase agreement or an RSBA. If any of you guys have co-founders and you have not yet, and I represent some guys in this room and we've done this already, and you have not yet vested your, your, your equity by a restricted stock purchase agreement or a restricted unit purchase agreement, that should be on your to-do list now. The other thing you should be doing if you haven't done this is you should be assigning all of your IP into the company. I see all the time Co-founders get into an argument, they split, one guy says, well, this was my idea, I'm keeping it. Or I own the domain name. You guys need to ask your co-founders, who registered the domain name? Because most likely an individual registered it. And you can't call GoDaddy and say, hey, this is Andrew with Cy, and I, this is my company, and my co-founder left, but I want the domain name back. They're just not going to do it. They don't care. So you have to put the name of the domain name into the company, or at least have an IP assignment agreement, IP intellectual property. An IP assignment agreement which grants the company the right to that domain name and then all the ideas and the inventions that you guys had before you incorporated the company. We had them do the IP assignment. You guys do that as part of the part of the uh, 
the documentation here. So that's good. Can you talk about the restricted thing? I didn't understand. Restricted stock said. purchase agreement. So yeah. with a restricted stock purchase agreement, and I'm just going to use stock. If you have an LLC, it's units, but it's the same idea. What this does is this actually grants, let's just say you and I are in a company together and we're 50-50. And we're each going to take 5 million shares. Well, if we each have 5 million shares and tomorrow I decide that I want to move, I'm going to walk with those 5 million shares. And now half the company's equity has, has walked away. It's going to de-incentivize you to work and it's going to really frustrate investors. So what you do is you put them under a, a vesting schedule via a restricted stock purchase agreement. And you say, okay, I'm going to take my 5 million shares, but they're going to vest over 4 years. Typically, it's a six-month or one-year cliff, which means that if I don't make it to six months, or if I don't make it to one year, I get nothing. But then on day one of year two, or after you know, day 366, I'll get a quarter, 25% of those five million, and then usually you'll vest monthly, the remaining 36 months with vest monthly. So what this does, it helps protect the company's equity, so that if you leave, the company will have the right to buy back those shares, and it's at a nominal price. Realize today, guys, or the day you incorporate your company is worth nothing. It's worth the 300 bucks that you paid to incorporate or the 2500 you paid to your attorney, whatever they do to start up dust. That's it. So if you divide 10 million shares by $2,500, it's you know, a nominal amount. So if we have to buy back the equity from a leaving founder, you can do that. Also, if any of you guys are in a 50-50 situation and you do not have a board in place, you need to have a buy-sell agreement or a dispute resolution process in place. Because what happens if we're 50-50? And the job now guys cannot, cannot get, uh, get an agreement on what they want to do next. And Pedro wants to expand to, uh, you know, to another state. And we're not ready to do that. How do we ever make a decision? So if you are 50-50, you need a buy-sell, or you need a board in place, you need a third-party advisor who can help you break that 50-50. Keep that in mind. What other questions do we have? Nothing else convertible notes? Okay, so let's talk about equity. Okay, so equity is just like it sounds. It's giving up a piece of your company. Pretty typically, I can give you guys the numbers are pretty similar for debt and what we saw in our deal audience for debt and equity. People are raising about $500,000 in a Series seed round. People are uh, giving up, you know, it's roughly at a $3 million valuation. Now, I realize if I say $3 million valuation, that's pre-money valuation. You always add the money that you got to your post-money valuation. So if I'm at $3 million and I raise $500,000, my post-money valuation is $3.5 million. You can, you can figure out the equity by doing $500,000 divided by 3.5. That's one-seventh or roughly 14%. So that's how much equity you're giving up in that round. That's an appropriate amount of equity to give up in that round. At the Series C level, uh, you're almost always going to be giving up preferred shares or preferred units. So pretty typically, you'll have two class. You'll, you'll end up with multiple classes of units or stock. I'm going to use stock just to keep things simple. Remember, guys, C -C seed, S-C-E-D, seed, like we're going to grow it. Yeah. I'm going to use stock mostly throughout here, but realize when I say stock and give an LLC, I just mean units. Same thing. Almost always at a seed round, and for sure at an A or B round, you will be giving up preferred shares. Preferred shares will have superior rights to those of the common shares. The things that preferred shares usually have are a liquidation preference, veto rights, and information rights. So let's talk about what those mean. Include right of first offer and redemption, so we can talk about it. Liquidation preference is really the key one. <coughs> participating versus non-participating. Does anyone know what participating versus non-participating means? If I invest, if I'm an investor and I invest $500,000 into side, I'm going to ask for a liquidation preference. Liquidation preference means when you exit, 
I want my $500,000 back first. So if I invest $500,000 in this side, and they exit, they don't go anywhere, they exit and they sell for $500,000, I'm getting all, I only own 14% of the company, the example that we gave you, but I'm getting my $500,000 back first. And they're getting nothing. If we exit for $2 million, I'll take my $500,000 back first, and then we'll go to $1.5 million, and then they'll split the rest. Depends if it's participating versus non-participating. If we exit for $10 million, I'll take my $500,000 out. We have $9.5 million left, and we'll split it per right amongst the members, amongst the shareholders. Now, participating versus non-participating refers to whether the investor gets the double dip. In a participating liquidation preference, the investor gets its $500,000 back, and then, when, and then they convert into common shares, they convert into 14%, and they take 14% of the remainder. So let's just assume that we exit for $10.5 million in my $500,000 investment in this side. And I'm participating preferred. I'm going to take my $500,000 back, so there's $10 million left, and then I'm going to convert into common, I have 14%, and I'm going to get $1.4 million out of that $10 million that's left. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. That's participating preferred. They get to double dip. In non-participating preferred, the investor gets either their money back or pro rata. So let's just assume we exit for $10 million. The investor can get either their money back, so I can take my $500,000 back, or I can go pro rata, which would be $1.4 million, down 14%. Obviously, I'd rather take pro rata. And the, the inflection point is always going to be the investment valuation. At $3.5 million, I can either take my $500,000 back, which is $500,000, or I can take my 14%, which is $500,000. So I get to pick. So if the company exits for less than the investment valuation, if the company exits for a million dollars, well, I don't want my 14%, it's only $140,000. I'll take my $500,000. If the company exits for $3 million, I'll still take my $500,000, that's more than 14%. But if the company exits for more than $3.5 million, I would be better off converting the common and taking my 14%. That's known as non-participating preferred. This is more company friendly. This is typically what we see. Again, participating, they get to double dip on the liquidation preference. They get their liquidation preference, and then they, then they get to convert into common and take pro rata. Non-participating, they take either or. They'll take the greater of 1x their investment value or pro rata. I can tell you we see this in about 90% of the Series C deals we do. This is very company friendly. This is the way the standard docs are written. This is a good thing. And what we're seeing as we get more sophisticated angel investors in, in Dallas, they are understanding that they want these to be company friendly terms because it makes it easier for a Series A round. Okay, so participating versus non participating, everything's going to have a liquidation preference. You guys want non participating, which is fine. This is typically what we see. The next thing those investors get are veto rights. So now the investors own 14% of the company. That's not enough to make decisions. You guys are still controlling the company, either through your common shares or through the board. Hopefully you haven't given up board rights. You haven't given up a, a board majority yet. You know, in size example, let's just say they brought in an investor. That investor might take a board seat. These two guys are going to have two to three board seats that they're going to control. And really, board seats are typically elected by common shareholders with uh, the investor getting the right to appoint one board seat. So these guys will vote themselves to a board seat. They'll have the majority of the votes to do that. The investor will appoint himself through his rights in the series seed round, but they'll always be able to outvote the investor, except for veto rights. The investor will have standard veto rights that says things like, these guys can't go setting exorbitant salaries to themselves to clear out profits. These guys can't go raise more money at terms that are worse than my terms without my approval. These guys can't increase the employee option pool without my approval. These guys can't go spending a certain amount of money, $100,000, without my approval. Again, the investor is not going to control the board. It would be rare in a seed situation for the investor to, for investors to control the board. But they will have veto rights to make sure you're using their money wisely. Yes? So are these explicit veto rights or they're like they're, blanket? They're, they're, they're explicit. If you, look in my, if you look in the term sheet that I sent you, they're laid out in there. They're in seriesseed.com. They're similar to the NBCA ones. The NBCA ones at Series A just has more. Is this common to do these veto rights at uh, seed stage? Or are you talking about Series A and the VCs and Seed stage, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Just basic veto rights. Again, the investor wants to be certain that you're not going to do something like go create a huge employee pool and then grant the founder's options, which are going to dilute the investor. 
or take the $500,000 that he invested in the expectations that you're using this for salaries and equipment, and then you decide that we're going to blow out a marketing budget. So those are known as veto rights. Again, the investor is not going to be able to control things, so they won't have control of the common. They'll have preferred shares, but they'll have the right to vote common on an as-converted basis. They're not going to have enough sway at the board level to control the board, most likely, but they will be able to prevent you from doing certain things without their approval. I will tell you something interesting about uh, investors appointing board seats to, uh, or appointing positions to boards. We've got a lot of companies that Cuban invests into. Cuban takes a right to appoint a board member, but usually doesn't. And the reason why Cuban does that is because, one, there's liability that goes along with being a board member. And if you're going to be on the board, you generally need directors and officers insurance, and DNO insurance is expensive. And they, Cuban or the MCC, the Mark Cuban companies, don't necessarily want to pass that liability on to the company yet. Two, they want to trust the founders. Hey, we're investing, you're early. We'll, we'll come get more involved down the road. But for now, we think you can do it. We're going to reserve our right to appoint a board seat if we want to. But that's really only until you guys screw up. So this is something that I have taken to some of my other investor clients and we are starting to do in our earlier deals. Is just take a right to appoint a board seat, but not necessarily doing it. And then the other thing is, Cuba doesn't have time. Right? He invests in a dozen of these things a month. He can't be getting calls or emails from board for board meetings all the time. So he just tries to you know, monitor the company or have his people monitor the company. If they feel they need to appoint a board seat, they will. So we're starting to see that pretty tip. Uh, more and more often. The next thing that you'll see are information. Yes? Um, say, for example, in Series C, you give uh, some veto rights, explicit veto rights to an investor. Would that stop an investor in Series B saying, oh, you gave out too many rights? No, it's a great question. Uh, usually those rights will expire at the next round. Okay. So almost pretty typically says, you'll have these rights for as long as you're a board member, but we're going to kick you out the board once you get a much larger investor in here or an institutional investor, and then your rights will go. Yeah, about the veto rights. So they're explicit, right? The the guy says, okay, I have the, the right to veto this, 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 and that, or you, it's only veto rights, and you don't know what they're going to be. They're very explicit. Okay, very explicit. I I, ne I say never. I rarely have a problem with someone saying, I'm not sure if he can do this or not. Okay. And then also, guys, as a company, you are just better off being as transparent as possible with your investors. Mm -hmm. One, so these issues never come up. Two, if your company is going to go down, and yes, yeah, some of my companies have to close up shop. If your investors know about it and they see it coming, they're never going to get mad. They're never going to threaten a lawsuit. They're never going to threaten to you know, try to take some sort of legal action. I mean, sometimes companies just don't make it. Marketing conditions change. We make bad decisions. We make decisions that don't work out. That's okay. Just be as transparent as possible with your investors. Another question? Yeah, so I was looking at it. Is it explicitly called veto rights or is it just called different things? Oh, it's just, and, and there it probably just says uh, voting rights or oh, okay. it says, yeah, okay. but they're, they're referred to as veto rights. Okay, the next thing investors will get are information rights. You might bring this to everybody, but typically investors will ask for at least quarterly unaudited financial statements. Annual, uh, if your company's big enough, audited financial statements, or at least annual consolidated financial statements, as well as updates on progress and market reports and things like that. Guys, I encourage all my clients at least once a month, preferably weekly, to be sending out investor updates. As a founder, you should be spending an hour every Friday sending out an investor update. This is how you keep them informed. This is how you make sure they don't get upset. This is how you're ready for them to write a check for the next round. So at least monthly, preferably weekly. should be sending out an investor update. Also, send it out to your network. Send it to me if I represent you so that you don't have to come in and sit down with me and tell me where your business is and get billed for it. I'll just read it and I'll know where you are. Send it to everyone in your network, send it to your advocates, send it to your investors, send it to your, your uh, you know, provided it doesn't have too much confidential information in it, send it to you know, people who might be interested in investing, send it to your employees. It's just good happen. So they'll ask for information rights. I don't like to give information rights to everybody. I don't want some $5,000 or $10,000 investor emailing me saying, hey, I want to see the financials. Hey, I was looking at your financials. Could we do this? Could we do that? Like, we don't need too many Indians. But at $50,000 or $100,000 investment levels, pretty much expected that they're going to have certain information. And I can promise you, once you get to the VC level and you're doing a Series A and you have VCs investing, they're going to be demanding these sorts of things. The next one is ROFO, right of first offer. Not to be confused with ROFR, right of first refusal. 
a ROFO, a right of first offer just says that if you go do another round, you are going to give the investors the ability to participate in that round pro rata. So in our example where I invested $500,000 in the sign, I own 14% of the company, if they do a series A round, they have to give me a 10 or 30 day notice to invest up to 14% of that round. So if they're raising a million dollars, I would have the right to subscribe to $140,000 for that, which is fine. These ROFOs are fine. This is typical. We want our investors active. We want them engaged. We want them reinvesting. It looks good for a number of reasons. So I don't have any problems with ROFOs. Right of first offer, pretty standard. Not to be confused with right of first refusal. People confuse these all the time. A right of first refusal is an internal right. A right of first refusal generally says if someone is going to sell their shares, the company will have the right to buy those first. So if for whatever reason, Pedro has negotiated with someone to buy a percentage of his job now shares, a third party, he would have to come and offer to his partners, to the company first, then to his partners and investors next. It's just a way to keep the shares inside the thing. At the same price, if Pedro's got someone who's willing to pay a great price for him, great, Pedro should be able to get that price, but the company or the other shareholders should have the right to own them before we get a third party. That's a right of first refusal. That's not in your equity docs. That should be in your shareholders agreement. It's definitely in any company. If any of you guys are my client or an LLC, it's definitely in your company agreement. And then if we draft a shareholders agreement for you, typically corporations don't early on draft a shareholders agreement, but it will. I can tell you in the RSPAs, if you guys are my client, it's in your RSPA that the company has a right of first refusal on anything you want to transfer. The last thing is redemption rights. You don't typically see redemption rights at the C level. These are much more common at the Series A, Series B level. Redemption right is a stick from the investor. Redemption rights are typically three, four, five years out, and that says, look, if you haven't grown, if you're not hitting your mark in three, four, five years, if you haven't increased the value of the company, if you haven't gone through another round, we can ask to you for you to buy our shares back. Typically, at a slight premium, maybe five, eight percent per year. Sometimes it'll be a big premium, two x. If you haven't hit, if you haven't done Y in in, in five years, we're going to ask for our five hundred thousand dollars back at two x. We're going to ask for a million dollars back. Now, in my example where I invested 500 in the side, and let's just assume I had a redemption right, I had a 2x redemption right after five years. If we get five years down the road, and they're still struggling, kind of puttering along, they probably don't have a million dollars to pay me back. So usually what happens is it tr triggers a, a board reconstitution. So if I look, we're either going to trigger this million dollars, if you guys owe us a million dollars, or we're going to kick you guys out and replace you with our own board members. And it's usually just a negotiating tool to, to get new board members in there, to get rid of the founders, because they're not taking the company with you rarely see redemption rights early on there. Very aggressive ask from an investor at a Series C level or from an angel investor. I would not encourage you to do that unless we have you know, kind of um, extraordinary cost to do so. So those are the standard terms you would see in an equity, in a Series C equity term. What questions do we have? Kevin, what do you see more common for the... Uh, C series uh, investment. Is it more towards the convertible notes? More towards it's a great question. It used to be convertible notes. I'm seeing more price rounds now. Now, I am okay with convertible notes. I don't have a problem with them. Mark Suster, who has a blog on both sides of the table, he was an entrepreneur turned big time investor, he has come to say that he hates convertible notes. But he hates large convertible notes, as do I. Large convertible notes are messy and they, and they, cl they clog up a cap table. I can tell you, for the fund that I invest in, there's been times we go, we got to spend hours and hours cleaning up convertible notes. You have to get buy-off from the investors to convert them. You have to do all these conversion calculations. And then the hit on equity, if you're just rolling up convertible note after convertible note after convertible note, by the time you get to a Series A round, you've kind of forgotten that you have all these legacy dollars in convertible notes. And now you're taking your million bucks in Series C and you have another million and a half on top of that in convertible notes. And the dilution is pretty nasty. Investors don't care, but if the dilution is going to be hit the founders, it's not going to affect the investors at all. And you want your founders to have a material part. You know, if you get a founder down to 10, 15%, they might not be as incentivized to continue working for a, a low amount as they had been before. I don't have any problem with early stage convertible notes when they're managed appropriately. That said, I believe that most people are doing convertible notes and they thought the legal costs were less, and they definitely are. But to give you guys an example, if we're doing a, if my firm and you know, for those of you who don't know my firm, we uh, we've got eight attorneys. We represent you know literally hundreds of startups around the world. We represent a handful of guys in this class. There's not an accelerator that goes on in Texas that we don't have to represent at least one in that class. These things are very easy for us. We do one of these a week at this point. In time. So 
So we can do these very easily. The $500,000 convertible note round that these guys are doing, now we've done all their, all their incorporation docs, so I know everything's nice and clean. But if you were just coming to us and we didn't do your incorporation docs, I would say a $500,000 convertible note round might cost you $2,500 to $3,500, depending on how many investors you have. And a $500,000 equity round might cost you six to eight grand. So it's not that much more. I mean, yeah, it's a couple thousand dollars more, but it's not that much more. It used to be, the notion used to be that an equity round was a cost of 20, 25 grand. If you go to a big firm, it very well may. But if you go to us, you know, there's guys out there. Ryan Roberts represents a lot of guys. He's awesome. Shamir Sony represents a lot of guys. He's awesome. These guys can do these things at reasonable rates. So I believe that's part of the reason why we're seeing less equity rounds. I also believe that just the idea that Mark Schuster's of the world are pushing these notions out there that convertible notes are bad, which I believe big convertible notes are bad, but small ones aren't. Uh, and that's affecting future rounds. So I think that's another reason why. But I'll tell you, in 2013, we saw more notes than equity. In 2014, they got to be about close. In 2015, I'm seeing way more equity rounds than notes. So we're kind of moving away from notes. And I feel like this is where everyone is going. And I think that in three to five years, convertible notes will really only exist as bridges between a seed and an A or between an A and B. What else? Yeah. Um, I read in multiple articles and from investors that if we give out the right of first offer um, to an investor in Series A, <coughs> investors in Series B won't be as interested in participating and about valuating the company. So th that's an argument because could you repeat that? So the, the, the issue was, he said he's read in many places that if you give a row for a right of first offer to Series A, that might hinder your ability to go raise a Series B. It depends. It depends on how much you raise in Series A. Yeah, if I raise $2 million in Series A, and I have a right of first offer to those $2 million against Series B, Series B guys might not be ready to take a look until I've already put out that right of first offer. But if the Series A guys are going to fill it, then who cares? Okay, that's one argument. I mean, Fine, well, let's just let the Series B round be filled by the Series A guys. I don't have a problem with that. The problem is if you have a real strategic investor who you want in, a VC with great connections, or maybe it's a corporation that has a venture arm, you know, a 7-Eleven or something, and you guys have a product that you want to sell into 7-Eleven, and we're getting blocked by our Series A investors because they're going to take up all of that round. I have a client where this is happening right now. His company's growing so fast. He's doing a $3.5 million A round. He wants to raise a huge chunk of that from a very strategic investor, and we're in problem because all our investors want to continue to come in and in. What you have to do is you have to go tell those investors, look guys, we need this guy for $2.5 million because he's going to do X, Y, and Z, and we're all going to benefit from it. So yes, you have that right, but if all of you exercise your right of first offer, pro rata, and it takes up all the round or most of the round, we can't get this guy in, I'm not going to go raise Series B. So it's just a conversation you have to have with your investors. If you have open communication with your investors, if you're emailing them weekly, if you're keeping them posted, if you're having quarterly or, or biannually, uh, semi-annually, investor update meetings, you're allowing them to ask questions, hey guys, we're going to go look for a strategic, so we're going to give you a roll but I'm hoping you guys don't all subscribe. I appreciate it, I love the confidence, but we've got to get the strategic in here. They'll understand. They really will. Um, I, I think it would be odd to try and push at this level, hey, I'm not going to give you a roll because of what might happen now. Yes. I think there was a question about the valuation though. You had asked about the subsequencies, the valuation of the company because the investors also put in some um, effort into valuing the company, right? They're not interested in that. At least that's what I heard in your question. I mean, is that yeah, relevant at all? Like say, um, the, the moment they see that there's a rope, right? They don't want to participate in valuating uh, the company because it takes time and their effort. Uh, they could end up just helping the CDJ guys who just get it for free, get the valuation for free. The, the Series A guys are going to set the valuation. I, I think you're misinterpreting the article. Okay. Or you're well, reading... Uh, there was a context to this because an earlier uh, presenter maybe understood the context. What they said was Amazon had taken a stake and they were the strategic partner right. that you were describing. And because they took that strategic stake, it excluded the Walmarts and the Sands and all of those people but not the... That's totally different. If Amazon's investing in your company, company, this is the least yeah. of your work. That's acquisition. Yeah, that's an acquisition. Don't worry about it. Yeah, that's People read too many things. They get too confused. This is not the West Coast. This is not New York. You can go and you can find information. If you want to learn things, go to those things. Come to our blog, learn things. Ryan Roberts has an amazing glossary on his blog. Go read his stuff. Go learn things. Don't find yourself reading the other attorneys. There's some stuff out there that I only think attorneys should be reading because it'll just confuse everybody. 
So don't get real hung what's going on out there. Hang out here. Go down to the state of entrepreneurship deal that they're doing at the deck in December. Learn from those types of places. Read what I put out there. Read the stuff in Dallas Business Journal. What's your Focus blog? your business around that. Just go to VelaKeller.com and click on blog. Did you have someone? Yeah, I, I was just going to tag along the uh, question about the valuation. Since you're seeing more uh, deals going towards equity, then it comes a question of valuation. So let's talk about the valuation. That's an interesting part. Who sets the valuation? Typically at the seed level, the company would set it. So you guys would meet with your attorney or you meet with your advisor and say, okay, we think the business, I mean, if these guys showed up in my office tomorrow and said, we want to go raise money at $3.5 million valuation, I'd say, where did we get $3.5 million? How are we going to justify that? And I've got some ideas how we can do that. Market penetration, customer acquisition, revenues, industry. You know, this thing about, well, I put in this much time and I'm a founder. That doesn't, everyone has time. Like, the amount of time that you put in, no one cares. No one cares. In fact, you're all sleeping at least a little bit, so I know you have more time than what you're doing. So time isn't worth anything. You've got to know what's going on in the marketplace, and I'm going to publish some things out there for you. But there's some real tangible things that we can do to value things. Realize, guys, in Texas, most of our money comes from oil and gas or real estate. Things that have value, things that you can touch, things that you can feel, things that you can see. People are used to seeing numbers on a spreadsheet and putting a value on it. This esoteric notion of, well, the market is worth this. If we capture this much of it, then I'll have this. That doesn't fly. It's getting there. It's getting there, but it's not like in San Francisco where they'll assign a million and a half to just because it's a social network. <laughs> so things are, things are different here. Just, you have to meet with people you trust and, and you know, to set a reasonable valuation. But at the seed level, pretty typically you would set your valuation we'd go to market. The way I do it, the way my clients do it, is we'll meet, we'll come up with what we think the numbers are, and then you'll go talk to the five people who have expressed interest in the past. You'll say, hey, look, I'm thinking about raising money. This is where we are. This isn't final, but this is where we are right now. How does this look to you? And we get their feedback on it, okay? And then we, we massage it and we put out a term sheet. Once you get to an A level, the institutions will set the valuation. The, the VC firms will say, I've done this before. You're worth this much. Here's our offer to you. You're going to raise $2 million. We'll take down a million of it. You've got to go find the other million. Kevin, is there an exercise? I know you're asking that come sit down with your farm, but is there any exercise, a step of things that they should put in a template before they come and meet? The easiest thing to do is try and find multiples for your industry. Okay. Try and find exit multiples for your industry. Now, whatever the exit multiple is, if you're a SaaS company, you can't say, well, I know, you know, um, let's see, what's the, Salesforce.com just bought this other sales tool at a 12x multiple. Well, they're probably more mature. So you're going to be a little bit less than that. But also a real dog in the industry, you know, multiples go like this, and then they flatten out, then they go back down. So it's usually some sort of multiple of revenues or EBITDA, but try and find a multiple in your industry. And I can help you to find those things, but you've got to be resourceful enough to go do it. You should know your industry. You should know who your competitors are. You should know what your benchmarks are. So you talk to investors, you say, well, how would you get to that? Well, we're at a 30,000 MRR right now. We're growing 10% a month, so we know that in six months we'll be at you know, 55,000 MRR. That projects, if we flatten out there, that projects to half a million dollars a year in revenue. And we're at a 6x multiple, so that's a $3 million valuation. Your investors will expect you. That's how you convince them that you know your market and your industry. Uh, just write one thing. Uh, sometimes people, uh, what, what I said is very important, don't only, only for the multiple, look to other metrics. Because I sell a lot of people in SaaS companies, they are growing zero, and they are using the same multiple that someone that's growing 100% a month. Right. So, so you need growth, what's your customer acquisition cost, what's your lifetime value, um, have you done any marketing? Uh, it looks like our hangers coming in. You know, so when you guys talk to Jason, talk to him about A-B testing. He knows that stuff really, really well. You know, Vic's been in this space forever. Ask him, how do I go find multiple? What metrics do you guys look at? Vic's a little different because of their, of their investment model? Yeah, J Jason's exactly who you guys want to be pitching to, Hank. Question about valuation. So, besides multiple, besides growing, can you justify based on your business plan that in three years we're going to be X and apply it? No, you should that? be, I mean, you need a plan that projects out three, maybe five years, but no one, when you know, I'm on the investor side, like I said, well, I run a small fund, I'm not looking at anything more than 18 months down the road because that's just too far out. Okay. That's just too far. No, but, you can, but you can use those numbers for valuation? Yeah, the valuation is easy today. Okay. Or, very, or in the very immediate future. Okay. That's why I said you've got to get to revenue, at least get to MVP. Okay. Now, your early stage, and also be careful when you raise money from your dad or your rich uncle that you don't have some obscene valuation on it. 
because then it's be hard to justify that value. You know, if your rich uncle doesn't care and he's gonna give you money on day one at $2.5 million valuation, and now six months down the road, if I'm just kind of through MVP on any revenues, are you really worth $2.5 million? And so now it looks like we're having a down round just because your uncle didn't care and you set some arbitrary number. You gotta be careful with those things. If you take a look on the, the, industry, the industry setup price, mm -hmm. so if at early stage, that all the comps early stage raising money. Mm -hmm. If in Dallas, the amount they are raising is certainly lower than California. So your geography, what yeah. industry you are, what stage you are, it, it, that's not a magic number. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they have a saying in California that is, any idea yeah. uh, is, uh, if you have an idea, it's at least two, three million dollars. But that's in California. If you come to Dallas and say, I just have an idea, it's two, three million dollars. You'll get laughed out of the room. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, I can tell you what ideas are worth. I mean, look at your accelerator values. Collide, Village, Health, Webcast, Tech, Wildcast, RevTech, they're all about the same. That's what ideas and team are worth. Um, there's my contact information, Vela Keller, www.velakeller.com, kvela at velakeller.com. You can just Google it to find this. Um, a lot of you guys know me. We have. So here's all the information. Um, I got about five more minutes. Yeah. So at our stage, uh, revenue might not be a possibility, but letters of interest very possible. So I think letter, letters of interest are really interesting, and that will help to establish revenue. And you can use that at the seed level. I mean, you know, you have to have the, the, the larger your round gets, the more tangible your information needs to be, the more tangible your revenue needs. So at this stage, I don't have a problem with it, but that might be a reason why you can convert with that. Right. Say, look, we don't really know we got these letters of interest, so we think it's worth $3 million, but why don't we just do this 25% discount, because if we're only worth a million and a half, then you'll get 25% discount to that. What I have uh, experienced real quickly, people who have been able to do uh, friends, families, and founders round, they have a much higher chances of getting into the seed, the seed or the angel. Because that shows a commitment earlier on that what the founder's been able to put. I know I've met with a lot of founders. They can put their money, but they don't want to put their money at early stages. They're afraid of their of taking their ideas to their parents, their friends, because they're not convinced. That's the first thing that comes to my mind, that they themselves are not convinced, and they cannot convince their family. Let me guys give you a little anecdote. I had three years ago, four or five years ago, I had some guy come in, and he had an idea, and... It was a, in the food business, and he said, "I need. I only need to raise thirty-five thousand dollars. Can you help me raise that money?" Thirty-five thousand dollars.